What is tragedy? Is it an all-encompassing thing which happens in your life that you cannot recover from? Or is it something you put behind you to survive? What if your life was a series of tragedies? Would you let it cripple your goals? What if you saw the tragedy in the lives of others? Would you do something to stop it? Or would you watch it go by without ever lending a hand? It's the life of a Tipperary woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In Ross Cray, County Tipperary, in 1859, a child was born. Her name was Margaret Dwyer. Her parents, James and Mary, would not be gifted the time to get to know their daughter really, or her them, as when she was just three, Margaret's mother died of tuberculosis. Her father, in the hope of raising some much needed funds for the family, and to create the foundations for a new life for them, died en route to America. She was just five when he passed. Orphaned and lost to the world, Margaret was one of the fortunate children of Ireland who had a family who could provide the opportunity for her to be not taken away by the church or the state. Living with various uncles and aunts, Margaret was able to stay in Ross Cray and to attend a local school. She found living with them quite tough as she had to live by their rules and follow their daily structures. She wanted to be free to do what she wanted to do and when she wanted to do it. It was in school that she found a great love of both writing and history. She was tremendously excited at the opportunity the pen in her hand allowed her to create worlds and stories. She would often be found by candlelight at the kitchen table scribbling short stories of adventures or creating stories based around historical characters. Unfortunately, however, in Ireland at the time, there were few opportunities for a female writer, and when she left school, she was burdened with one of the great troubles of the world, finding work in order to continue living. At the age of 18, she began working for a wealthy family in Dublin as a governess. She was tasked with the role of teaching the young children and helping them in their schoolwork. She had to teach the lessons they wanted her to teach and live the daily routine which they prescribed for her. The work she found came to an abrupt end. The story was never made clear as to what actually happened and the details of the investigations are poor, but it seems as though there was some sort of a scandal in the house. One of a sexual nature. What happened exactly is unclear, but what is clear is after the event, the young man of the house took his own life and Margaret fled for Australia. Before she left, she changed her name to Daisy May in order to hide herself and possibly hide from her past. When she eventually landed in Australia, after a few months at sea, she settled with friends she made along the way in Townsville in Queensland. Here she spent some time working in the homes of the Church of England bishops and clergy in the area. After a while, she managed to get a role again as a governess. As with the start of her life, her rebirth in Australia too came with complications. She married a poet named Harry Morant. 
This marriage didn't last very long, as soon after the wedding, Daisy discovered that Harry was a con artist. He had lied about his age. He told her he was 21, when in fact he was only 19. He lied about his wealth, and had no money to pay for the loans for their wedding. He lied about his job as a horsebreaker, as Daisy discovered he was actually stealing already broken horses and selling them on. Luckily for Daisy, as he lied about his age, it meant the marriage was not legally bound and she threw him out. To start life for the third time, she moved to New South Wales. Here she met a man named Philip Gipps. They quickly fell in love and decided to very quickly marry. Unfortunately, however, Daisy never met Philip at the top of the aisle, as before their wedding day, he became very ill and passed away. The following year, in a town called Bathurst, Daisy met a man called Jack Bates. Jack was a bushman and drover, and would spend months on the Australian outback, working on farms and herding livestock across the Great Plains. During their marriage, a child was born, called Arnold, but this wasn't enough to force them through their marriage. With Jack being away for months on end, Tensions began to rise between the two, and they split. Arnold, however, may not have been Jack's son. You see, whilst Jack was away, Daisy came back into contact with Ernest Bagelhall, a man she had met in her travels to Australia. The two rekindled their friendship, and after some time became more than friends. As soon as her marriage with Jack was over, it became clear that Daisy had been in a relationship with Ernest during her marriage and had even married him before her divorce was finalised. Jack, however, was unaware that his son may not have been his son at all. Arnold, the son, was taken by Daisy to England. Here she left him in a Catholic boarding school and told Jack that he would not get his son back until he could provide a home for them. Whilst in England, she decided for the first time in her life she was going to do what she wanted to do. She was tired of being held by the shackles of men and the decisions they would make for her life and she decided she was going to fulfil her passion of writing. In February 1894, whilst penniless in England, Daisy got a job working as a journalist for the social campaigner W.T. Steed. She spent two years here developing her craft and saved as much as she could. She left her role in 1896 and in 1899 she arrived back to Western Australia. She arrived back to her husband and old friend Ernest who had purchased a home for them in Perth. The two instantly realised that in the time they had been apart they had grown and changed so much. Ernest was now a man focused on growing the wealth of his family's business. Daisy was now concerned with living a life where she was the decision maker for herself. On her way back to Australia, she by chance met a Catholic priest called Dean Martelli, who told her of the adventures he had had with the native people as he tried to convert them to the Catholic Church. She learned of their suffering, the burning of their societies, the feet that trampled on the culture, and the slaughter of their children. 
She decided now was the time for her to live a life she wanted to live. She wrote to the Times newspaper, explaining how she wanted to travel to the Aboriginal people's settlements and to do research on their suffering. She wanted to discover the lives that were being stolen by the white entitled settlers. She bought a small house as a retirement plan, packed a small bag of books and headed into the unknown. She soon arrived to Beagle Bay. Convinced that the Aborigines were a dying race, she decided that here would be where she would start her mission to capture all she could about their history, their culture, their stories and their adventures before they would be lost forever. Here she met a group of settlers who were working with them. She looked to join them on their mission until she realised that they were not there to help. They saw it as better for the people to be assimilated into Western culture rather than live their own. She was horrified by this. How dare they be so self-important that they think the best way to help is to make the people like themselves. They saw no value in the Aboriginal way of life. They believed, in their own words, you could train the locals to be correct and the only good Aboriginal was a dead one. She set out on her own, travelling across the Great Plains and through harsh conditions to find tribes she could learn from. On her journey, she once again met Dean Martelli, who helped her find what she was looking for. Without being able to share a language initially, she managed to display it to the Aboriginal people, she meant them no harm and she was allowed to stay with them to observe. In order to better live together, Daisy began to document words and phrases being used by the Aboriginal people she lived amongst. Whilst doing this, she developed a local dictionary which delved into different languages and dialects of the Aboriginal people. From this, she began to be able to better communicate. She learned of their history, the importance of the land and earth to them, and of their slaughter. She took the words she learnt and spent the next six months travelling over 4,000 kilometres to other tribes and each accepted her as one of their own as she understood their struggle. She saw with her own eyes tribes getting attacked during the night and their camps being set on fire. She sat with the tribe's children on the hills in safety as they watched their parents fight for all they had as they were butchered and damned. All for not being correct. She returned to the settler cities and towns and began sharing the stories of the rightful people of the lands that they were stealing. She spoke elegantly and published a series of papers on the midnight raids on the tribes people and for the first time brought the public's eyes towards the damages that they were doing all for the sake of profit. Horrified, the good people of Australia began to put pressure on the local governments to stop what they were doing and to help where they could. As a result, Daisy was given the role to do a scientific paper on the Aboriginal people. Almost an attempt to see could she prove were they even human. This was in 1904. The paper took her seven years to complete. 
This was brought by campaigners to the Royal Society meetings and members were made read them to see what they had done. In 1911, she was appointed as a travelling protector of the Aboriginal people with the special allowance of being able to perform inquiries should she come across any wrongdoings. She was effectively the only person who had the power to protect the Aboriginals from settlers. She continued to write papers and share what was happening. After a time, the novelty of action wore off on the people and they began to see her as a nuisance to the progression of Australia. The more human she made them look, the harder it became to remove them as a problem. In 1912, she wanted more powers to help, but had her application rejected, as she was a woman and could not be trusted with so much power. She, in return, sold every single possession she had, cashed in all her savings, and left the modern world to live full-time with the Aboriginal people as their protector. As she returned to them, with her own story, she was appointed the protector of the Aboriginal people of Western Australia by the people themselves. She was the first woman to have been given this role by the Aboriginal people. She then disappeared into their culture for the next two years. The only signs she was still alive were sightings of a white woman amongst the Aboriginal people by people passing through. Then, in 1914, she appeared, totally out of the blue in Sydney. Here she attended the Science Congress and told her story. This was latched onto by the progressive women's groups who had heard it and heard of her struggle. They agreed to help finance her and her new people so she could continue to write and publish their dying stories. The writer, Ernestine Hill, took her story and brought it to the rest of the world. Aged now 71, Daisy continued to write from her tent amongst the tribes on her typewriter. In 1938, she published The Passing of the Aborigines, in which she described the death of the culture, the society and the people. She had seen their slaughter had passed the point of no return. This realisation came to her as she saw them having to resort to cannibalism and infanticide where the parents would have to pick which of the children to eat so the others could try and survive. In 1948, she returned to the Western way of life. Her work had ended and her people were now gone. She tried to reconnect with her son, who had served in France during World War I, but he refused her advances. On the 18th of April, 1951, Daisy passed away. She saw her life's work as a failure, as she was unable to help save the Aboriginal people's way of life. Today, she is remembered by the Aboriginal people by the word Kabarli, meaning grandmother. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash We The Irish. We The Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ornus Anam Dum, Gurv Magut, Slaninish.